0: to Second Kings chapter 14, Second <clears throat> Kings chapter 14, it's about presumption and prosperity, and in this chapter, we have a rough outline of a chain of kings from both Judah and Israel, two kings of Judah, Amaziah and Azariah, and kings of Israel, Joash, Jeroboam II, and his son Zechariah. Amaziah was a presumptuous king, and that is, he took things for granted. He stepped out of the boundaries that God set for him. The whole chapter here suggests certain things that are worth mentioning in God's authority over mankind. The first thing that gets our attention is how much freedom God allows wicked men to have. Let's begin looking at verses 1 through 7 in chapter 14. In the second year of Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like his father David. He did everything as his father Joash had done. However, the high places were not taken away. And the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Now it happened as soon as the kingdom was established in his hand that he executed his servants who had murdered his father, the king. But the children of the murderers he did not execute according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, in which the Lord commanded, saying, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children be put to death for their fathers, but a person shall be put to death for his own sin. He killed 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt and took Selah by war and called its name Jachthiel to this day. Here we learn in these verses that God allows wicked men to form wrong ideas about himself. And all of these kings, even though they were descendants of Abraham, who Abraham was a monotheist, which means belief in one God, these other kings became idolaters. We read that the high places weren't taken away in verse 4 so that people sacrificed. They still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Golden calves, which were symbols of Egyptian worship, were set up at Dan and Bethel. Now, you would think that the creator, the almighty creator of the human mind wouldn't allow it to think of him as some material thing in nature. Or as some creation, some made-up thing in man's mind. What, what human father do you know, if he had the power, would allow his children to form not only wrong, but wicked impressions of himself? And it, you know it's, it's odd that, that God allows this. Even though it shows God's respect for that free will that he's given us, we still learn from this that God allows wicked men to have cruel authority over, of, uh, over other people. Now, all of these kings were wicked, Amaziah, Joash, Jeroboam, and Zechariah. And yet, God still let them have an oppressive control over the rights, possession, and lives of millions of people. Jeroboam II uh, uh, reigned for 41 years. And it says down in verse 24 that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not depart uh, uh, from all the sins of his father, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now, if you look at history, you could come to the conclusion that if a wicked man was allowed to live with his fellow man, that he would be doomed to become nothing, that he would lose social and political power. But it's not so. Why? Because God punishes wicked men by their own wickedness. In other words, your own wickedness will sooner or later do you in. This was the divine principle to guide all judgment. Judgment was to fall upon those who had committed the crime. You see, evil nations often punished families, whole families, if someone in that family had done something wrong. But you see, that's not justice. Justice calls for judgment on the individual, on the criminal, not a relative or relative's. You see, this doesn't make God unjust when he allows a curse to come upon a family for a number of generations. The law of Moses said, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers, but a person shall be put to death for his own sin. But like I said, that being the case, it still doesn't make God unjust if he allows generations of children to experience hardships or a curse, if you will, because of their father. You see, the problem is not God, but man. For example, let's say a man insists on doing drugs. Now, we all know that drugs can affect his children. And it can affect his children for a number of generations. Because he's damaged his genes in taking drugs. And this will affect his children for generations. And I remember back in the day when I was in dr- doing drugs and you know, I did a lot of LSD. They said it could, you know, damage your chromosomes and your children can be born with, born with uh, birth defects. Well, in the world, I didn't think of it at all. But when I became a Christian and I wanted to have kids, I was freaking out. Because I thought, Lord, please don't let my stupidity from the past ruin my future. And praise the Lord, he, you know, he, he spared me of that. But again, it could go on and affect, you know, generations because of one man's, you know, silly behavior. Because he sowed, he will reap what he sowed in his children. That, it's the man's fault, not God's fault. Even though you can multiply this problem many times over, but still it is never God's fault. Any curse that follows for generations on a family can be traced back to some sin of a key person in that family. Also, we learn from these verses, a wicked man is punished by his own wickedness. Amaziah's behavior is an example of that which we're going to see here in a few minutes Being overjoyed with his victory over the Edomites He wanted to go to war with the king of israel in verses 7 through 8 He sent messengers to joash the son of joaz king of israel and he said in verses 8 through 14 Come let us face one another in the battle About 15 years after his defeat He fled from jerusalem to lachish to keep from being assassinated But the the assassin chased him down and killed him, according to verse 19. That's the way it always is. Your wickedness will turn on you, and and it'll end up doing you in. Wickedness is its own punishment. The wicked desires of a corrupt person are are their oppressors. Sin, in a sense, is suicidal. When you reject the word of God and you reject the way of God, you're pronouncing your own death sentence upon yourself. Also, a wicked man is punished by the wickedness of others. The thousands of dictator kings that were brought to misery, hardship, and death, they were idolaters. They were rebels against the Lord and his word. They were punished by the hand of wicked men. That's the way it always is. That's the way it always be. You see, you are your own oppressor. Sin changes a group of men into tormenting wicked people. You see, man becomes the Satan of man. A wicked man needs no other tormentor than his own heart. We become our own Satan, working against ourselves. Verses 8 through 14. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Joash, the son of Joahaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel. Notice notice what he said. Come, let us face one another in a battle, because he will defeated the, the Edomites, you know, he got this big head, he got a swelled head, puffed up, thinking, okay, I can take anybody on. So now he wants to face the king of Israel. He says, uh, come let us face, or he said to the king of Israel, come let us face one another in battle. And Joash, king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, and he gives him this parable, the thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon, saying, give your daughter to my, wife as, to my uh, son as wife, and I will, and a wild beast that was in Lebanon passed by and trampled the thistle. He tells him, you have defeated indeed Edom, and your heart has lifted you up. Glory in that and stay home. For why should you meddle with trouble so that you fall and you and, and you and Judah with you? But Amaziah would not heed. Therefore, Joash, king of Israel, went out. So he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his tent. Then Joash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemus, and he went to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate. Four hundred cubits. Verse 14. And he took all the gold and silver, all the articles that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and hostages and returned to Samaria. Notice the boastful challenge by Amaziah. Notice the results. He tells Joash, he says, Hey, let us face one another in battle. There in verse 8. This, now this was the message from a king to a king. Amaziah was riding high after his victory over Edom. So Amaziah decides to challenge Joash, king of Israel, he, which had just recently suffered death, uh, defeats by Hazael back in chapter 13. Amaziah's invitation to Joash to face each other in battle, that was a declaration of war. Now, if we take these words, that is, let us face one another, if we took those words out of this setting and kind of changed them a little bit, we would have some very good advice. You know, we could make them useful and, and give them a timely twist. For example, where he said, let us face each other, Let's look at God in the face. Let's see him as he is. But it's sad to say, it's so easy to get wrong ideas about God. And because of wrong ideas, that's how hostility starts against God. Jesus said, they hated me without a cause. You see, if men knew God better, they'd be less afraid of him and they'd trust him more. God said in Isaiah 118a, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Reason about what? Well, how about the very point that you've been talking about? Wrong ideas about the Lord, that God is unloving and that he's cruel. We read in the second part of that verse, Isaiah 118, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow, though they be like crimson, they shall be as wool. He says, you know, you you think of me. That is, you think of me, God, as being harsh and hard and unloving. He says, get rid of that thought. In Micah 7, 8, he says, I delight in mercy. You see, to look God in the face isn't hard now. You see that Jesus has come. Jesus said, you know, it says in Colossians 1 15 that, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We see the tenderness that was said to a desolate widow in, in Nain in Luke seven eleven when Jesus told her, don't weep, I'll raise your son. We see the power that claimed the roaring, that calmed the, the roaring waves and calmed the howling winds with just one word. We see the holiness that was never stained uh, from his contact with, with publicans and sinners. It shows us the attributes. He shows us the attributes of Jehovah God. Secondly, look yourself in the face. We read in James 1.23, 20, uh, if any is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing the natural fa- his natural face in a mirror. By the light of, of, of God's word, the light that's given by God's word, we can see our own characters. And you know what? We, we need to take this self-examination often. It's very important. The psalmist said in Psalm 119.105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Socrates said this, we should not live a life which is not subject to examination. And because we don't do this, some people are surprisingly unaware of their true condition. They think they're okay. That's like with the psalmist. We have to ask God to search us. Lord, know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. And Lord, point out anything in me that offends you and then lead me onto a path of everlasting life. The same church that thought we don't need anything, the same church that thought, oh, we're doing okay, was told by Jesus, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. It's amazing how God looks at us and the way we look at ourselves. We can be so ridiculously mistaken about ourselves. Now, to keep from making such a mistake, we need to weigh ourselves in the Lord's balances, in the Lord's scales. The ones he's provided for us, the word of God. Paul told the Corinthians in Second Corinthians ten twelve. he said, those measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. I can always find somebody to compare myself to to where I'm going to come out smelling like a rose. Oh, I am so much better than they are. Oh, yeah, I'm not like them. Why? Because they measured themselves by themselves and compared themselves with themselves. Howard Hendricks says comparison is carnality. Third, if we, okay, we look God in the face, we look ourselves in the face. Let's look at man in the face. Some people might say, well, that's not necessary. Nothing is more ordinary than wanting to see people face-to-face. 3 John 13, we just finished. He said, I have much more to say to you, but I don't want to write it with pen and ink, for I hope to see you soon, and then we will talk face-to-face. I'm sure we all believe in seeing people face-to-face. You know, writing isn't the same as looking at somebody face-to-face, communicating with them face-to-face. We want to see the person as well. If you hear of a a great writer or preacher, you want to see them. When we visit friends, what do we say? We're going to see them. You know, many people today, especially with the social media, we're way too isolated. If the different classes of society had more interaction with each other, man, it, it would be better for us all around. We'd learn more about each other. We'd understand each other a lot better. Interaction between the rich and the poor would help to produce sympathy by the rich and confidence by the poor. Where is the continuing in the apostles doctrine and fellowship that we read about in the in the book of Acts in the early church? We read there that all the believers met together in one place and they shared everything that they had. And they enjoyed each other's kindness and friendliness. And it said they enjoyed the friendliness and kindness of all the people. Think of how many misunderstandings among us might be prevented or eliminated if we looked each other, at each other in the face. Again, social media has made it possible, hey, that we don't have to see anybody anymore. We can stay in our little dark room and we can text and we can tweet and we can Facebook and we never have to see anybody again. You think maybe you've had an experience you, you, that, that a friend, you know, maybe they've been a little cold to you or they seem a little distance. distance you know, it's not like them. And you begin to wonder, Man, did I do something? You know, they don't seem to be as friendly as they are. or Did I say something? You start worrying about it. You start racking your brain trying to figure out if you said something or you did something wrong. And what that does, that fans that little spark of what did I do into a raging fire that will take away your peace. Instead of worrying about it, visit them. Be honest and have it out, so to speak. In other words, if you face that person face to face and you you just get it out, most likely in a few minutes, you know what, the whole thing will probably be settled, it'll be put to rest. Then we have the parable in verses 8 through 9. Let's read the the, the parable in verse 8 through 9 that uh, Joash gave to Amaziah. Then Amaziah sent messengers. I'm sorry, yeah. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Joash, the son of Joaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us face one another in battle. And Joash, king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, The thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my, my son as his wife. And a wild beast that was in Lebanon passed by and trampled the thistle. Three things lead to, to giving this, this parable here. First of all, a so-called success where Amaziah defeated the, Ammoni, the Edomites. And he just, you know, that, that success was part of the reason for this. Secondly, un- underestimating a superior. Amaziah underestimated Joash. Third, a disrespectful challenge. Now, success. Amaziah had success in beating, defeating the, the Edomites. Success is a relative term because, you see, it has to be based on the circumstances connected with that success. For example, a man who safely steers his, his little canoe across a small lake in calm waters... He achieves a certain success. He got from point A to point B. But in reality, it's a short and fairly easy journey. And it can't be compared to a huge cargo ship that successfully crosses the Atlantic Ocean in rough, stormy weather. The captain who brings his vessel safely through the dangers in this kind of a journey has rightly earned the right to be called successful. But it's by no means the same as the man who took his little canoe across a small lake in calm waters. No way are this the same thing. But you see, this was the conclusion that Amaziah, the king of Judah, came to with his little defeat. Because he had conquered the Edomites and he had killed 10,000 men, according to verse 7. Because of this, he thought that he should be just as successful against the king and the armies of Israel who were much more dreadful enemies. Now, Amaziah's conclusion came from, first of all, underestimating his superiors in the skill of war. You see, if you decide to take a challenge, let's say you decided to swim a river, you better know well the strength of the current, you know how cold it is, in comparison to your own strength. Because you see, a mistake could be fatal. Jesus said, What king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. It's obvious that Amaziah underestimated the military strength and the capacity of his army. Because when they met... When they did meet, verse 12 says that Judah was defeated by Israel and every man fled to his tent. You see, Amaziah underestimated a man who was a greater warrior than he was. And that led to the disrespectful challenge. Hey, Joash, come on, let's face each other in battle. Success in a mission sometimes uh, fills a man with with arrogance and self-confidence and pride. And they think nothing can stand in their way. Kind of like when Joshua defeated Ai. It says, now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth Avon on the east side of Bethel. And spoke to them saying, go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and they spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua. And this is what they said to Joshua. You know what, Joshua? Don't let all the people go up. He says, let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. He says, don't weary all the people there, because the people of Ai are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai struck down about thirty six men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. No doubt. The impressive victory that, that, that Joshua had at Jericho gave him and his army a whole lot of self-confidence. And self-confidence can lead to presumption. Because Ai was a smaller city than Jericho, victory seemed like a piece of cake. Hey, don't send. Hey, you don't have to send the whole army. Just say a few thousand, you know, we'll take care of it. It'll all be said and done. So again, you know, Ai being a smaller city seemed like it'd be a piece of cake in man's opinion about the situation. Instead of going to the Lord in prayer and seeking guidance from the Lord and seeking the mind of the Lord, Joshua accepted the counsel of his spies, and this led to their defeat. Spiritual leaders have to always seek the Lord's face and determine what his will is for every new challenge. And because Amaziah, the king of Judah, had defeated the Edomites, he thought that the army of Israel would be a pushover for him. So he challenges Joash to battle. The parable of Joash was the cedar was used to rebuke Amaziah, the thistle, and it suggests that the sense of Amaziah's superiority came by a similarity of nature. In other words, the difference between the cedar, which is Joash, standing in all of its glory on the mountain of Lebanon and the worthless thistle, which was Amaziah, that has sprung up at its foot is very great and suggests that the king of Israel's which was Amaziah, his contempt for his rival was made in aggressive words. Hey, come, let us face each other in battle. So the the cedar, which was Joash, of a thousand years, couldn't be uprooted or removed by the strongest earthly power. While the thistle, which was Amaziah, of yesterday, was at the mercy of the first creature of the forest who passed by that way. So the proposal of the thistle, that is Amaziah, to the cedar, Joash, is a declaration of presumed equality. Amaziah's challenge to Joash, he thought he was equal to the challenge. What happens to the thistle? Amaziah says he was trampled. This is what would happen to the self-esteem of the king of Judah. He would be trampled by Joash. If he didn't take the advice that was given to him in verse 10, Hey, guy, stay home. They don't, don't, he says, why should you meddle with trouble so that you fall? Notice the success and the lack of success of this parable. It was a success in view of the fact it was a true picture of the character of the man whom it was intended to represent, which is Joash the cedar. But it failed to produce a helpful effect on the person it was addressed to, which was Amaziah the thistle. You see, Amaziah did not want to see his own likeness. He didn't want to see what he was really like. It's like people who are disfigured. They don't like to see themselves in a mirror. The parables of Jesus Christ was often disliked by the hearers. Because the hearers did not like what they were hearing. Because Jesus was showing them a picture of themselves in the parables. Here's the lessons from this. One proud man may become in the providence of God. The way of humiliation to another. Again, Amaziah's presumption, God's sovereignty using Josiah to humiliate Amaziah, or Joash to humiliate Amaziah. There were a lot of people in the man, uh, there was a lot of pride in the man who compared himself to a cedar, which was Joash, as well as in him who rebuked rebuked Amaziah. Men who are prone to pick fights, (laughs) will usually find out that they're the ones that get beat up. (laughs) They invite their own ruin. Nations and rulers who go to war for no other than ambitious reasons will only speed up their own destruction. Jesus said, with the measure, measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Also, a person who has achieved a fair amount of success by exercising a fair amount of ability you know, showing that they can do things, they may lose what they've gained by trying to do something that's beyond what they're able to do. For example, a gambler who's won a fortune gambling with a man who's just as skillful as he is will most likely lose it all if he tries to gamble with a much more skillful gambler. Amaziah would have been smart if he would have just been happy with the victory he had over Edom and stayed home. Because you see, he would have been spared the humiliation of being defeated by the king of Israel, Joash. People who become proud and overconfident by their prosperity can turn a blessing into a curse. And as a result, defeat God's intention. Success in the things we do is meant to produce thankfulness. Thank the Lord for our prosperity. Humbleness. We're at fault. If these... Times of prosperity don't produce that effect. Here's the great lesson of, of history. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Let's read verses fifteen through twenty two. Now they're just historical facts or they're just pretty self explanatory, but let's read them verses fifteen through twenty two. Now the rest of the acts of Joash, which he did, his might and how he fought with Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Then Jeroboam, his son, reigned in his place. Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And they formed a conspiracy against him in in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to to, uh, Lachish and killed him there. Then they brought him on horses, and he was buried at Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Elath and restored it to Judah after the king rested with his fathers. Now let's look at verses 23 through 29. It's about Jeroboam, Jeroboam II was a prosperous king. Verse 23, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-hefer, For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and whether bond or free, there was no helper for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did, his might, how he made war, and how he recaptured uh, for Israel from Damascus and Hamath what had belonged to Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jeroboam rested with his fathers, the kings of Israel. Then Zechariah, his son, reigned in his place. After the sad but way too too familiar words that uh, Jeroboam, we heard of, said, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. We have here in these last few verses here, short comments about his reign. We see that some of Israel's fortunes were, were restored. Jeroboam II was successful in war. Jeroboam continued the work of Joash. He fulfilled the promise that God would give Israel a deliverer. Jeroboam was enabled to finish recovering the cities and territories of Israel that the Syrians had captured. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, which means he extended the boundaries of the kingdom as far as they had ever reached in the days of its, when they were in their greatest prosperity. What was the cause of this? God's pity for Israel. The amazing turn of events in the fortunes of Israel was strange. When we think about Jeroboam, who was not a man who had the fear of God in him. The explanation is the one that was already given in 2 Kings thirteen twenty three. But the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them, and regarded them. Here's why. Because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he would not destroy them or cast them from his presence. You see, it was God's pity that he had for Israel. It was God's desire to give them one more chance before blotting out her name. It was his respect for the covenant that he made with the forefathers. And secondly, his regard to Johaz's prayer regarding the oppression of Israel back in 2 Kings 13. If as the result of this revival of Israel's fortunes and godliness didn't also revive, then destruction would come all the more quickly. In raising up this powerful king to save Israel, we see God's faithfulness to his promises. We also see prophecy being, being carried on here. Because we have a reference here in verse 25 to the work of Jonah. Remember, he was sent to Nineveh. And we know that in this reign, other prophets, Hosea and Amos, were also, you know, exercising their ministry. The writings of Hosea and Amos, they show us how during the good times of revival and prosperity, that the condition of the people didn't improve. They grew more and more corrupt. But again, because of God's faithfulness, because of his care and his love for his people, it was shown in sending prophets like Jonah to warn them about judgment. What could be better than the tender compassion of Hosea's ministry or the faithfulness and sincerity of the testimony of Amos, who boldly, Amos boldly defied, boldly defied the highest men in the land to witness against them. And yet the people wouldn't listen. And they gave credit for their prosperity, not because God loved them and pitied them. He, they gave their, the, the credit for their prosperity to their idols. And they worshiped them even more than ever. While immorality, violence, and the loosening, that is, the loosening of all ties between man and God, the, the, the closeness between God and man, it, it, it got, they got further and further apart. Hosea 4.1 says, Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. What a sad statement. And they're on the verge of collapse. Jeroboam II died. And he was succeeded, followed by his son Zechariah. And he reigned only six months. In closing, from this time on, Israel went down the tubes quickly. The peak of their prosperity reached in the reign of Jeroboam was just the last little flicker of the light that they had before their final destruction. A little over 30 to 40 years after Jeroboam's death, the words of the prophets were fulfilled and the kingdom of Israel was destroyed. The people were carried away by the Assyrians. God's people longed. They longed for the day of the Lord to come. Now they thought the day of the Lord would bring greater glory to Israel. But the, people, but the people didn't realize that the day of the Lord actually meant divine judgment on their nation because of God's judgment. It starts with his own people. Israel was given in to idolatry. And that led to more and more moral decay and worldly corruption. The Assyrians invaded Israel and brought an end to the nation of Israel because, again, of their... Their distance from God and not get obeyed and following God's way, Father, we come before you this evening to once again thank you for this uh, lesson, God. Father, showing us, God, that our presumption, Lord, our arrogance and our self pride can bring us swift destruction, Lord. Lord, let us be humble. And remain humble, God, in your eyes, Lord. Let us come before you with thankfulness and, and, and just thanksgiving, Lord. With praise and worship and adoration for who you are, Lord. Father, let us follow your law. May we follow in your ways, God. Now, now, may we not presume upon your word, God. May we not take things into our own hands. But God, may we seek your face for every challenge before us every day, Lord. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. And maybe you take things for granted that you're Okay. That everything's going to be okay. But we can't do that. We can't presume upon the things of God. We have to know about the things of God. We have to know what he says. We have to know what he requires of us. We have to know his laws and his ways. And we have to abide by his laws and his ways. And, And God's word says, Jesus, said, I am the truth, the way, and the life. He's the only way. He's God's way to the Father. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship right now. If God has spoken to your heart and you recognize your need for Christ, then as we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And when the song is finished, we'll say a simple prayer of faith together.